smell of the barbecue is coming through the side, and um, as Pastor Jen was sharing, I could smell that, and so it is enticing. It, uh, the barbecue that's made, as he talked about, um, I think our dear brother Ken and Frank have made it, and I've tasted their barbecue. It is better than any restaurant that I've had. So I suggest, you know, be a little selfish after service ends and rush out and get it before they run out, right? Like, watch out, I got to try this. Um, but uh, let's support them. We're excited for our mission team. The neat thing about our mission team, sometimes um, you think of a mission team, you think it's like a bunch of teenagers or 20-somethings that go on missions. But you'll see here we have 50-somethings, 40-somethings, 30-somethings, 20-somethings, and teenagers. I mean, families and and it's really neat to see. And they'll be going to Mississippi. Uh, if you're newer, uh, we've been doing this since day one of our church, one of the poorest um, counties in the uh, United States. And we go and run uh, things for their youth. And so it's, we've seen a lot of fruit over the years now. And so it is something that, is, uh, that we are excited about and we get to do again. And so uh, make sure you encourage them as they... Uh, prepare for this uh, trip and we want to thank everyone that helped out at our VBS we had a phenomenal time and it was really neat to see our whole church come in and uh, from the youth and collegians and the T42 and moms and dads and everyone serving in different ways and we had a wonderful time um, and so we thank God for all the little ones and um, you know I was sitting in the service while the praise was happening and there you know the the moves and the dance and stuff. We don't do it in here because none of us could keep up. But, um, uh, you know, the, the joyful thing was I could hear them literally screaming the words and singing. Uh, some of them on key perfectly, some of them a little off. You know, you could tell who's mom or dad's on the praise team. And, but they were singing their hearts out. And it was such a, a beautiful sound. And it was a, one of those moments I said, this is why we do what we do. And uh, uh, for them to sing out these words and so what a joyful time that was so we thank God for that you know we're in chapter 47 uh, Genesis goes to 50 so we're at the tail end of this we've been going along for months and months now through uh, from Genesis 1 till here we get to the point in this story and today um, just a little uh, sketch of what what the story is about and we didn't print out all of it and we're going to be going through all of 47 uh, chunks of 47 uh, it's a story about now uh, Jacob, the father of Joseph, and their whole family, which is, will be eventually the, the nation of Israel. Uh, it's a story about them now moving into Egypt. You remember the previous few chapters, there was a lot of going back and forth. Joseph hid his identity. They didn't know who he was, and he would hold Simeon. He would demand that they bring the other son, and they would, they would go back and forth, back and forth. And this famine has been going on, and now they cannot live without moving there to have food. And Joseph graciously reveals himself and invites them back. He says, come move in with me to Egypt. And so the hand of God is upon his people, and he's, he has promised to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. But all of a sudden, they're moving into a different nation. And it seems almost like God is out of control, but yet in the midst of this turmoil and famine, God is in control. And Jacob now moves back, and Jacob and his sons meet the Pharaoh. He is considered a god amongst the people in Egypt. He is not a normal leader. 
And so they're going to meet him for the first time and get permission and his blessing to stay. And so you can imagine how tense and how stressful this time was. It is like uh, going to your first job interview or, or meeting your you know, soon-to-be fiancé's father for the first time or girlfriend's father for the first time. It's a very stressful time. And they're coming in and they're going to come and meet Pharaoh. And as they meet Pharaoh and we see the interactions... First, uh, some of the uh, brothers come in and meet Pharaoh. And then secondly, uh, Jacob comes in and meets Pharaoh. And he provides for them. And at the end of that story, we see now Joseph continuing his good work and helping now the world around them to be fed. And so we see this story happening. It's a time of turmoil, famine, and yet God's hands upon them. And we see here uh, three simple questions that are answered and if you could have the answer to these three questions you could face anything in life any disappointment any loss any hardships and it's okay and if you do not know you are living aimlessly the simple questions are who am I what is my identity where do I find my identity we see it in this we'll see it in the story the second question is where am I going what is my destiny what is my final destination And thirdly, why am I here? What is my purpose? Why am I doing what I am doing? If I don't know my purpose and I go to work, it all of a sudden becomes meaningless. If I don't know my purpose and I go and help at church, all of a sudden I get burned out. And so we will look at those three questions and try to answer them. The first question is, is, um, who am I? This is a question of identity. And if I could ask you, maybe a lot of uh, words come to mind. Who are you? All the things that you do, all the things that you have achieved might come to mind. All the degrees you might have, the positions that you've had. Uh, Maybe you are a a spouse, maybe you are a parent, maybe you are a brother or a sister, maybe you have a role in the church. And all these things come to mind. It is important to know who we are. And this is the first question that's asked of Pharaoh in verse 3. When the brothers come in to meet him, and you remember, this is a very stressful time. This is their chance to impress And if they can impress him, they might be able to stay and live. What is at stake is their lives. Literally their lives. And the intimidating figure of Pharaoh calls him in and he asks him this question. Verse 3, Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? That's the first question. What is your occupation? Not how are you, how was the travel, what is your, what kind of food do you guys like, or... Not even their names. What is your occupation? This is a stressful, loaded question. Because the answer now has to impress Pharaoh. If you are going to go to now the sovereign ruler of the greatest nation that is around, and that ruler calls you in and asks you, what is your occupation? Your brain is scrambling. The text, it's hard to tell, but you can imagine that the brothers are looking at each other saying, oh my gosh, we have to say the right thing. We cannot lie. He probably already knows what are we going to say. And he says, and they replied to him that they are shepherds. Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were, in verse 3. Now this is a very unimpressive occupation. This was the bottom of the totem pole of occupations. Shepherds were looked down upon because They worked with their hands. They worked with the animals. And so the smell, literally the shepherd would smell like a barn or a barn animal. 
and the bugs and the fleas and the, the ticks and the gnats, everything that would be on an animal would be on the shepherd. And so it is something you are not impressed with. It is something that you could see by their fingernails. These people work with their hands. And not only that, uh, they were many times thought upon as dishonest. Some shepherds would take other animals from other uh, groups and other shepherds, and they would kind of mix them into theirs so their flock would grow. And so they were looked down upon in that way as well. And thirdly, shepherds were looked down upon because all the sheep, that come with the shepherd, all the animals. You know, one of the apps I like to look, look at, you know, this is my, um, when you're over 50, you look at apps like Nextdoor, and this is the TikTok of, of the over 50, I look at that. And when I look at Nextdoor, what do we often see is someone older than me complaining about something in the neighborhood. So-and-so is driving too fast. Oh, I heard a loud, firecracker, what was that? Well, 4th of July, okay? And, uh, and then the number one complaint, what we see is this person. And there is always, always a picture that is very fuzzy, that's from their ring camera. This person and their dog pooed in my front lawn, and they didn't pick it up. Do you know who it is? No, I don't know who it is, right? But it's interesting to see. As me and my wife walk through our neighborhood, take our evening walks, I see signs, you know, you know, cute little signs, no poo, no dogs on my lawn, and so on. Now, you can imagine, that's annoying. Imagine a shepherd coming in with 500 sheep, and they don't have any poo-poo bags tied to the leash. These sheep are going everywhere. And not only are they going to make a mess, they're going to eat everything along the way. And so when he is asked, what is your occupation? And now this is the worst thing they could say. And they have to say that they are shepherds. They did not impress Pharaoh or anyone else by that answer. We, especially where we live, you know, in Orange County and L.A. and the people that we live next to and um, uh, we go to work with, it, it's very competitive. We often measure one another by our titles and our work. We get maybe sometimes a little more impressed when we find out, oh, they are a doctor so-and-so. Oh, this person's up, he made partner here. And we get all so impressed and we treat him maybe a little differently than we ought to. We catch ourselves often listening to someone just because they are doing something that makes a lot of money and they give advice on something they don't know anything about and we listen to them. And we get tied into our abilities. And you know, our jobs, our abilities are a terrible source of our identity. Because one day it'll end, one day it'll deteriorate. And where are we going to find our identity? We as Christians, we do not put the word Christian as an adjective before something we do. I am a Christian who is a teacher. I'm a Christian who is a healthcare worker. No, you are a Christian. I'm not just a Christian who is a mom. No, you are a mom. Uh, who is, you are a Christian who is a mom. You're a dad uh, who is Christian first. And so we often tie our occupation, our successes, because it is something measurable. It is something I have achieved. There was an article that I read recently that talked about how so many people who have been passed down wealth, millionaires and billionaires, and they've now just been passed down, and now they struggle with that guilt, and now they often lie and say that they're self-made millionaires. 
Because there's pride in that. That I came out of the ashes and I earned this. And I might impress someone if I tell them I made the millions. I've reached this point. Uh, mental health counselors uh, talk about the level of depression. And one of the studies that was given is that uh, self-reported depression goes up by 40% in the first few years of retirement. The moment that we are no longer needed to work because if that is tied in and our occupation is what we are called by, and we are no longer needed, no, just about the same rate, 39% of athletes, professional athletes, they report how they feel a sense of depression when they retire. You'll see big, strong athletes who will play through broken bones and concussions weep when they have to retire. Because they're no longer able to show off and they're no longer able to prove they're the fastest, strongest. They can throw the ball, hit the ball. And all of a sudden, they're done. Their abilities are no longer good enough. Where is your identity? Love what Tim Keller said. Uh, when work is your identity, if you are successful, it goes to your head. If you are a failure, it goes to your heart. Uh, one of the things I read from him that he quotes is, you know, right after the, the financial kind of downturn in 2007-2008, the, uh, the number of people who worked in money management and CEOs, the number of high-profile suicides shot up. Because all of a sudden, everything that's measurable is gone. Their self-identity, their worth is gone. Their portfolio went down a billion dollars, and they're going to now not be worthy to live. The famed uh, French sociologist Durkheim, Emil Durkheim, um, argues, argued this over 100 years ago. Those who are the highest, in the highest suicide rate, risk are those with the greatest fortunes who lose the most and have the furthest to fall. The ones who had the most and that would fall the furthest. And so if we catch ourselves now saying, it's my identity, and maybe your parents and your family has been all so driven and it's all about the accolades and this and that. And before we know it, we pass it to the next generation. So proud. You know, Junior made all-stars team. Or so proud my princess got selected to this travel team. And we now are so excited. And that, without knowing, gets passed on and happens in the church very, very easily. Doing well is good. Making money is good. But finding your identity in those things will lead uh, to a downward spiral. Our identity is in Christ. So these brothers of Joseph, they're able to say, we're shepherds. Not only are we shepherds, our fathers were all shepherds. This was our identity as the people of God. It's not so much about my occupation. It's my lineage back to God. Shepherds all the way down. And what happens is a miracle. Pharaoh, you would think in human terms, if we paused and didn't read ever past that section, we would think Pharaoh would have banished them from the land. It would only make political right leadership sense because we're in a famine. I don't want a whole family or a future nation to come in and eat up everything that we are lacking. Get out 
but he provides for them the best. This is a work of God. This is the hand of God upon Pharaoh. And so, who am I? That question is answered. The second question that is posed is, where is my home? Where am I headed? What is my destiny? Where is your home? Uh, the second part of the story, Jacob comes in to now Pharaoh. The father comes in to meet Pharaoh. And he is asked um, how old he is. In verse 9, this is his response. Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. He describes his life as a life, 130 years. He's at the tail end of his life. Right after he's telling his, giving his son burial instructions, he knows his time is over. But he describes his life as a life of a sojourner. Verse 9, sojourning are 130 years, and he describes the life of his fathers as a life of sojourning. He describes his own journey or sojourning as short or few and evil. Evil meaning it were di- they were difficult times. It's difficult going into a new space. It's difficult going into a new land. It's difficult not knowing the culture or the language, not having heritage there, not being comfortable. It's difficult to having to uproot all the time. And it was difficult. But here is someone who knew where their home really was. You ever get stuck on a flight delay when you're going home? Imagine, you know, you're sitting... The worst part is when you're on the plane for two hours, three hours, and it hasn't even left, right, the airport. I've had times where I fell asleep. Maybe took a 20, 30-minute nap. I woke up, oh, my gosh, we landed, right? And I'm so excited, oh, we're finally here. And then, no, I look out, oh, my gosh, we're still here. And I look at my watch, it's been two hours. And the captain hasn't said anything. It's worth the wait only if you're going home. It's worth the trouble only if you're going home. Would you just go on a plane just to sit there if you have nowhere to go? Right? If Southwest says, hey, come, get on a plane. You're going to sit on the tarmac for a few hours, um, and then you'll leave, right? No peanuts, because everyone has allergies now. You're just going to leave. I'm not going to go on a plane to sit there. Oh, come to John Wayne Airport. Just hang out. Just sleep on the dirty ground that, like you are homeless. Just sleep there, wait for a plane, but you have nowhere to go. You ever travel somewhere? I catch myself whenever I'm out of town. I'm always looking at the weather of what it's like back at home. Oh, whew. It's 72 and cloudy again, right? Oh, it's a great day. Um, Do you care about the news, where you're at, the politics of where you're at? No, you care about what's going on back at home. There's something about our heart that is attached to the place that we will arrive to. And here they are described as people who are sojourners. If we make this earth our home, it will be an utter disappointment. If we live for the things of the earth, it will be an utter disappointment. It is in Ecclesiastes 1.11, he says that when we pass, he says, there is no remembrance of the former things, nor will be there any remembrance of the later things, yet to be among those who come after. 
if you make this, it's all about here, my fame, my place, my name here on earth, my things. He says, as soon as you're gone, you're forgotten. And the new group that comes, they don't even remember. And how disappointing is that to live for the things that will be forgotten so quickly? How important it is that we are a people of hope. How do they survive? How did Jacob and his uh, fathers and his sons, how did they survive? As we have gone through Genesis, it has been a story of utter disappointment after another, but somehow they have survived because they are people who are looking forward. Hebrews chapter 11 is, lists all these Old Testament saints and what they live for. They live for their, through their faith. I want to read just a few sections of it. Verse uh, 8, speaking about Abraham. He obeyed when he was called to go to a place where there was to receive as an inheritance. I love this. And he went out not knowing where he was going. This was the life of the people of God. Verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was not so excited about the next house or the next city or the next things. It's nice to have a house. It's nice to have an address and so on. But he cared about the city. That the foundations and the designer and the builder is God. And then we get later on in that chapter, chapter 11 of uh, Hebrews, verse 16, for example, it'll say, it says, they deserve a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. He has prepared a home. Friends, this is our destiny. This is our hope. Don't put your hope in the market here your retirement account here, the things you will buy here, the people that you have around you here. Don't make this my ultimate hope. My hope, our hope as the people of God, is a heavenly home. And there is nothing here on earth that could disappoint us as much as us going back home. You know, uh, sometimes when we travel, uh, we end up going to visit our old home where we grew up. Years back, we went up to Northern California, um, I lived up there in Oakland and then Castor Valley until uh, middle school and moved down here. So I thought it'd be kind of fun uh, for my kids to see where I grew up. They slept through the whole tour that I was trying to give them. But anyways, we got there, um, and I didn't take them to my Oakland house. Very dangerous, so I didn't go there. Um, but I said, we'll go see Castor Valley, right, where, where I went to some part of elementary and middle school. I said, there's our house. And I look back there asleep. I look at the house. Looked a little smaller. Looked a little older. Um, then I remembered. I drove to my middle school. I went to Canyon Middle School. I drove up and looked around. I said, this is where I went to school. Are we there yet? You know, we're trying to get to Zachary's to eat pizza. Are we there yet? And that's what they were asking. And this, is, um, this is my school. Now, I didn't all of a sudden say, oh, I'm at home. Oh, gosh, I just want to hang out here. I thought... Okay, mental note. It's a lot uh, less glamorous than I thought it was in my memory. It was a lot smaller. Okay, let's move on. Let's go on. And we moved on. This is what uh, C.S. Lewis talks about, this longing for something. He uses a, a, a German word, senschut. 
senshut, and he describes it as the inconsolable longing for which we know not what. Let that sink in. He said all of us have this senshut, an inconsolable longing for which we know not what. You ever feel like something is just missing in life? But you don't know exactly why. You ever feel just down for no reason? Nothing bad happened in circumstance, but you say, is this it? And this is the longing of the heart that Lewis is talking about. The inconsolable longing for which we know not what. Uh, The term living water is used in the Old Testament and obviously by Jesus Christ. Living water. Living water is described a place where it's fresh, clean water. You get what you need. It's the source of life. Living water literally meant life for people. Because it was fresh, moving water. They would call it living water. And if you could have a source of clean, moving water, you're set. You settle down. That's your source of life. In Jeremiah chapter uh, 2, God says to the people, to his people, you have done two evils. You've forsaken the living water. You've said, there's living water. I don't want it. And he says, what have you done? The second evil is you've made a cistern or a, a bucket that cannot hold the water. It has holes in it. So he's saying, you've replaced me for the things of this world. The things that cannot quench the longing. The inconsolable longing that we know not what. And that's why Jesus tells the woman at the Samaritan woman, as he asks for her a drink in John 4, do you know that I am the living water? Don't go for the things of this earth to find your satisfaction ultimately. We are sojourners. We don't belong here. So the things here will not satisfy us. It is the same reason why Moses, when he named his son, he named him Gershom in Exodus 2. Gershom means stranger, a stranger in this land or a stranger here. It was a reminder that he was a stranger. They had been kicked out of Egypt uh, generations later. And they are wandering in the wilderness, and Gershon was now that reminder. We are sojourners. But we have something greater. We have a home that we are looking for. And the third question that is answered in this story is, why am I here? What is my purpose? In this short life that we live, why are we here? We are here to be used by God to serve others. To be used by God, to bring glory to God by serving others. So in the midst of this chaos, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're number two in power. You've brought your family, the brothers who try to kill you. Uh, you probably have some still mixed emotions about that. You definitely have some trauma about the things that, and the memories that you have. But you've brought them over. Your father is now in the land. They're settled. But the whole world around them is in famine. This famine has been going on and there is no relief in sight. And now people have literally ran out of money. The people in Egypt, the people outside of Egypt have ran out of money and they're saying, we need more food. We're literally going to die. What are we going to do? And he now goes back to his purpose. God has put him there to save the people. This is what Joseph does. 
Verse 12, he, Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of the dependents. Not easy to do. That would be a wonderful time to go and take revenge. To say, oh, this is karma coming back at you for what you did to me. But he provides for everyone. And not only for them, he provides for the people around. It says in verse 13, now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. So everyone says, we need more food. They've ran out of money, they've bought with the money. They still have food saved because of Joseph's work. And Joseph says, well, now bring your livestock, sell your land, sell it to Pharaoh, we'll provide for you. And he works things out this way. And at the end in verse 25, this is what the people in Egypt and people in Canaan said to him. They said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. You have saved our lives. In famine and in distress, it is easy for him to go and huddle up and hoard for himself. And forget everyone else, he's done enough, but he continues his purpose. Why is he in Egypt? Why did God allow him to go through all that he went through, from the jail and the prisons, uh, to be falsely accused, to be sent here, and somehow he was going to be used by God. And God has brought you where you are today. He has brought you into your circumstance today, and he has called you now to go and serve in this way. The moment you serve others, and let me just share this, the moment you go to work, you go to volunteer at church, it, the moment it's for you, and you do it for yourself, and a lot of times we do good things for my own benefit. It makes me feel good, oh, appeases my guilt, it makes me feel better. The moment we do it for ourselves, it loses its meaning. How many of us have gone to work and had a job and said, ah, oh, I hate my job, because we just did it for the paycheck. How many of us have I've seen over the years, people, countless people say, oh, church, I'm burnt out, I'm done. Because we've ultimately done it for ourselves. If I go into a place and I say, how can God use me to serve others? And whatever job or school or wherever we're at, we go in thinking, how can I now serve others? And I come to church and I roll up my sleeves to help out and I'm thinking, how can I serve others instead of how can I be recognized? We can do this on and on and on because we are living in purpose. Joseph, in the midst of turmoil and famine, continues the work. And many benefit from him. Who am I? Where am I going? Why am I here? It is all answered in the faith that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is my... Um, encouragement and plea to us all that we answer those questions and we find it in him and don't go elsewhere to look for those things because it will ultimately disappoint us and we will lose meaning in what we do and may we as the covenant people of God continue to live for God continue to follow after him as he guides us through abundance through famine through hardships through good times he is there Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you uh, for this story of your faithfulness. You provide, you are there, and you give now 
uh, purpose to your people, to us as your covenant people as well. So we thank you, God. And Lord, in a moment as we take communion and we take some time to pray, uh, would you bless us here, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to share.